0: From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Executives across the country are rethinking their strategic plan. And that's exactly why we spent the last episode talking to one such executive about his plans for the future. Today, we're bringing you part two of that conversation. We're back with Mark Harrison, and this time we're focusing on Intermountain's approach to health equity. So, Mark, let's talk about that. And I want to talk about social determinants and health equity by taking a lens to technology. In our last episode, you talked a lot about the impact of tech in terms of things like telehealth and AI and the mobile experience. But Honest Moment, much of that push for a more digital patient experience comes from patients that look like me.
1: So somebody with headphones on or?
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, I'm talking about young, healthy millennials who use Uber in normal times and who- You know, order ice cream off Postmates, which I've done way too many times during this pandemic, and are looking for similar experiences with healthcare. But it's important that we also make sure that we're making care accessible for vulnerable populations, for rural populations. So we have to acknowledge this digital divide and the very real pushback that tech enabled care delivery could actually make health disparities worse. How are you thinking about bridging that digital health divide at Intermountain?
1: So that's a, that's a superb question and not an easy one to answer. It's a multifactorial approach, Ray, particularly for the rural communities. Uh, we still have areas here that don't have fiber, and it becomes very difficult. Uh, now, what's interesting is that when we have a hospital in a community, uh, we need the fiber and we get it. And it actually can open up access in an indirect fashion for neighbors and communities, which is um, which is a fascinating sort of bleed over. We advocate at a state level, and then we have helped support economically uh, getting rural areas connected. You know, I think the bigger issue is around personal devices mm-hmm. and what it means to be able to access care on your phone or on your iPad or, you know, your laptop or, or whatever. um, We're finding that's actually a little bit less of an issue than we thought it was going to be Yeah, because these devices, I think people are prioritizing them probably very appropriately as integral to actually how you have to live. And they may even be pushing other things down their priority list. And turns out the connectivity is, close to one of the basic Maslow hierarchy of needs, along with housing and transportation, food and personal security. One of the bigger issues, I think, is, you know, is that digital care um, culturally competent?
0: Hmm. What do you mean by that?
1: How many websites are, you know, available in Spanish? How many chatbots can you choose to do in Spanish as well as in English, or you name the language, et cetera? I think that any sense of complacency around care model evolution has to be framed in terms of what's right for the person, what's right for the community. But I hope people realize it's a matter of survival as well.
0: I think this push towards serving rural communities isn't just about how do I bring the doctor directly to the patient's phone. You have shared with me in the past a bit of an innovation that you all have done with serving rural communities while keeping the doctor in their home practice. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to, Ray. When I um, got to Intermountain, I was very impressed by uh, the backbone of a telehealth program that was really robust. And it it actually evolved out of necessity. So we have a very dispersed footprint. And even more now that we're um, expanding our presence in Idaho and in Nevada and digitally across the whole Intermountain West. And Our 24th hospital was a virtual hospital, and now we have more than 50 tertiary and quaternary services that are delivered virtually. And in the last year and a half, we've added about 20 or 25 affiliate facilities outside of Intermountain. Uh, We have another 25 or more in the hopper, and uh, it's going extremely well. Our clinicians were moved by the plight of some of our patients in rural areas. And I'll give you one example that's actually kind of near and dear to my heart. Nurses at a hospital in central Utah, about 100 miles from this hospital to the next town in any direction, were noting that old people in their community who got diagnosed with cancer were choosing to die instead of get chemotherapy. They didn't want to drive hundreds of miles every week for infusions You know, in their mind, they didn't want to waste the end of their life on the road. They wanted to be with their family. So these nurses, they said, "How can how do we do this better? You know, what how do how do we solve this problem?" And we have extremely flexible, innovative folks at Intermountain, as you know, and they put together a, a tele oncology program. So patients were willing to go and get staged at one of our big centers, and then. were were able to, after a televisit, have their chemotherapy and other infusions uh, and checkups done at the local hospital. So really interesting that the patients did really well and they liked it and they didn't, quote, waste the end of their life driving all around. And the collateral benefit is that the rural hospitals did better economically. Now, maybe our bigger centers had a little bit less economically, For the folks who are in a risk-based model, it doesn't really matter to us. And so now we've got, I don't know, eight or 10 uh, oncology clinics scattered across the Intermountain West, and people are staying close to home.
0: Yeah. And we've been talking about impacts to improve the health and life of, of rural populations. But we also know that COVID has been a catalyst for change and reinvigorated the fight against structural racism. I'm curious... How you are thinking about the future of healthcare and addressing some of the racial disparities that we see in the health system?
1: The first thing we're going to do is make equity and addressing disparities in health part of our value system and part of the fundamentals of care that underpin all of our strategies. So we will be addressing uh, equity and health disparities in the way we address everything else consumerism, affordability, access, innovation. So we will have discrete goals around what are we going to do for people.
0: Can you share some of the practical things that that you're going to start doing to make progress towards minimizing those disparities?
1: So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to start measuring disparity in our population in a very biomedical fashion. Hmm. So as a very first step, we have documented what others have found um, around maternal fetal medicine and risk to women of color in terms of their own health uh, and the health of their babies. Our obstetricians have taken great pride in providing everyone the same care regardless of who they are. But what this has showed them is that certain populations in order to get the same outcomes may need a different or more intense approach to achieve those outcomes and that
0: mm-hmm. just
1: having everyone get the same is probably not enough to have people's health end up in an equivalent hmm. place.
0: Can I can I jump in on that? Is that so as somebody who works with physicians every day, alarm bells are going off in my head for the frontline physician who's saying, but you can't ask me to to treat my patients differently. It feels like cherry picking, right? And I, I'm imagining the pushback that, that you could get to physicians who are completely strapped for time right now. So I'm curious, first of all, did you get that pushback? And how are you helping those physicians provide differentiated care to those vulnerable patients who need it?
1: So, you know, it's interesting and maybe this speaks to the quality, I know it speaks to the quality of human beings who I work with. This was driven by the doctors. Hmm. This was the head of our women's and newborns program who after he began to read about the disparities and outcomes from COVID, they pulled their data. And you know we're a data rich organization and they were able to look at how their group was doing. And they were horrified to find that, they had much the same outcomes have been reported in the literature, and they've taken it upon themselves to begin to address this. Now, these are early days. We don't know what the solutions are. Sure. But what I can assure you, Ray, is the most intermountain thing in the entire world is to identify a, a, a clinical problem and to look at the information and then relentlessly change until we get superior outcomes. Hmm. I mean that that's our history. We've done it for decades. We do it as well as anybody, I believe. And I have a belief that our clinicians are going to figure this out. Now, it's up to me to make sure that they have the tools they need to do their job. Yeah. And it's up to them to partner with me effectively so that we give them exactly what they need, but no more, because we don't want to drive up the cost of care. Yeah. But I'm really excited about this, Ray. This is the right thing to do, and I tell you, I think our clinicians are going to be all over this because this is a totally non-punitive thing. Um, This is only a doing good kind of thing, and it—you know—people are framing, you know, the racism issue as a political issue. It's not a political issue; it's a human issue. Hate has no place in healing. None. Together, I think we can do good. We can do well. We can do the right thing, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on. Um, We went into this business, as you pointed out earlier, to help people, and I'm convinced that's exactly what we're going to do.
0: We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break.
1: The battle against COVID-19 continues, and we at the advisory board could not be more grateful for the continued commitment of our healthcare heroes on the front lines, In hopes of bringing a bright spot to your day, we've collected over 50 remarkable stories of strength, teamwork, generosity, and victory from your peers, and we've posted them at our website, advisory.com slash spot. We hope that you will visit this page on those days when you just need a boost. Thank you for being our bright spot.
0: You mentioned that making equity one of your strategic goals was one big effort that Intermountain is making, but I don't think that was it.
1: No, we um we will be recruiting a, a chief equity officer, and there are folks who just slap that person onto their leadership team. And um we've been extremely thoughtful about, as we've created the job description, you know, we want this person to have an impactful, meaningful job. What committees do they need to sit on? Who are their partners? What are their roles and responsibilities? And I hope that there's somebody who's listening to this who will apply for that job too.
0: Is there an email we should we should put in the show notes for them (laughs) to submit their resume?
1: Um contact Mark at imail.org would be just fine. (laughs) And we will also be putting in place and the title may change a little bit, but an associate chief nursing officer for equity and an associate chief medical officer for equity. These will be enterprise roles that address both how we deliver care, how we recruit people, how we create workforces that represent our communities. I think it's going to be very impactful. We will also invest in developing pipelines. You know, change doesn't happen overnight, and we will make key hires that are diverse, but I think more impactful is how do you change the economics of an entire community by creating pipelines to jobs that are going to change their trajectory of families for generations. And we're really excited about that.
0: You're actually starting to talk about what my next question was, which is actually hopefully an opportunity to get ahead of some pushback that I think people might be might be thinking or considering right now. And I want to give you a, a chance to, to fully address it. Intermountain is headquartered in Salt Lake City, which isn't necessarily known for its diversity. You also have some benefits there, right? A healthier population, perhaps more favorable social determinants of health than other parts of the country. What do you say to that pushback?
1: So if you actually look at Salt Lake County and the Wasatch Front, it's extraordinarily diverse. We have really robust Latino communities, Seas communities, uh, indigenous people. There is a growing Black community here as well. What you said may have been true when I trained here 30 years ago, and and we left and came back. It's not true anymore, and that's just an excuse. I'm not big on excuses. I'm big on identifying a problem and then making inexorable change. Now, for people who don't believe in our model, there's a reason, in addition to having enormous respect for Healthcare Partners Nevada, which is now Intermountain Nevada, that we added them to our family. We wanted to learn from their ability to keep people well, but we also wanted to demonstrate that the integrated Intermountain approach is viable in other geographies. And what I will say to your listeners is watch us grow and watch us apply this model to diverse geographies and do the right thing and demonstrate that population health and value-based care works regardless of where you are.
0: And, Mark, I think that brings me to my final question. It is one that I ask at the end of every interview here on Radio Advisory. You and I have covered a lot today about the future of healthcare. So, my question for you is what should leaders in healthcare be focusing on right now?
1: Ray, um, I'll answer that a little bit indirectly. It wasn't so long ago that I was at a. Um, A meeting of healthcare leaders and there was a round table conversation about the things that were worrying each of us and probably 20 people around the table, 19 people gave self-interested answers or institutionally interested answers. You know, how much are we getting paid? you know, what's the regulatory environment like sort of pissing and moaning about the technology disruptors and how they're making things a lot, a lot more difficult. Yeah. N- nobody talked about how they could use the privilege of their position to make the lives in the communities around them holistically better. So I don't, care what your political bent is right now i'd say that our political system is fractured and and there's a real schism the people who are listening to this podcast are really responsible for lots and lots of lives and lots and lots of dollars my question for them is what are they doing to make systematic social change that's going to help heal some of those divides and to provide a refuge for civil, thoughtful, collaborative conversation. And that we should take the ability to collaborate that we have rediscovered during COVID and we shouldn't give up on it.
0: That's so right. Mark, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you. there is so much change happening in our industry. And as we look to the future, I know that many of you are thinking about how to actually shift your organizational strategy to match the realities of the moment and even the realities of the future. If there's one message I wanna leave you with across the last two episodes, it's not actually one of mine, it's one of Mark's. And that's that in the face of all of those changes, Use the privilege of your position to make the lives of your patients better. And remember, we're here to help. Owen, you're not supposed to be here. Do I have to do it again?